the Radical Secular Podcast, dedicated to the separation of church and state and the pursuit of justice. Visit theradicalsecular.com for our full library of episodes and articles at the Radical Secular blog. Sign up for free access to exclusive content and giveaways. Email us with your comments and suggestions and follow us on social media. Welcome to the Radical Secular Podcast. I'm Sean Prophet. I'm Christoph Defoe. This week, we bring you a special guest who's a profile in Courage. Her name is Coral Annika Thiel. She spent 14 years from 1982 to 1996 in a series of abusive cults, uh, starting with the People of Praise. Her eight children were, he- were held hostage by the cult. After granting her a temporary protective order, the Oregon courts ultimately sided with her husband and the People of Praise and separated her from her children, including her youngest, who was still a nursing infant. We really can't wait to bring you this interview. I feel so inadequate trying to summarize this painful story into a show teaser. Uh, we'll get it straight from the person who lived it in just a few minutes. But first, the news. We want to spend maximum time with our guests, so we'll do an abbreviated news segment today about the only thing worth discussing this week is the Senate impeachment trial uh, and acquittal of former President Trump. So uh, we'll talk about that. This just happened just minutes before our taping today. Uh, the vote happened, and it was... Uh, 40, 50, 57 in favor of conviction and 43 against. And so he was acquitted. Uh, I, I want to remind you, please, to be sure and subscribe to our podcast. We're on YouTube and all the major podcast channels. New episodes post every Monday at noon Eastern time. If you like our show, make sure to subscribe, leave a review and tell your friends to listen. Which brings us to our big announcement today. Our brand spanking new website, theradicalsecular.com which was put together with much love by Christoph and our resident designer, Tim Stetner. This website is our one-stop shop where you can sign up to get on our email list and also enjoy our full content library. You can also find the Radical Secular blog, and we'll be posting updates in the future about how you can get involved and support our efforts toward secularism and justice. So tell us more about the website, Christoph. Yeah, sure. Um, It's a labor of love. Uh, I had to learn how to put a website together. Uh, Certainly, uh, Tim was really helpful and instrumental in terms of our branding, as always. Um, But we have uh, but it's but it's you know, it's it's relatively basic, but I think it's it looks good. We can get all of the all of our all of our stuff is there. All of our uh, episodes, Uh, you can sign up to become part of the radical secular sort of club. We're and we're going to be doing a lot of things with it going forward. So and there's also links for you to subscribe to everything. So I think it's pretty cool. I think it's pretty fun. Uh, I am very proud of it. And, um, you know, check it out, everybody. Yeah, thanks for that, Christoph, and for all your hard work. All right, let's talk about the impeachment trial. Holy shit. I mean, what (laughs) what is there even to say? You know, like right out of the gate, I want to say that as I was thinking about this impeachment trial, I thought about it in a lot of ways, the same ways I thought about the last one, which was that I knew the the, the outcome was never in doubt, right? So it almost felt like insulting to even watch it, right? It's like this, I mean, I'm really glad it happened, but it, but my initial reaction was like, I don't even want to fucking watch this thing. I know what's going to happen. And I know Josh Hawley is going to be up there fucking literally doodling or right, you know, with his mm-hmm. feet up, feet up. And so, but still, when I watched the the video, uh, when I heard the opening statement, 
it was very powerful. It was it, it, it brought me right back to January 6th in a way that I had didn't even realize I had sort of forgotten or that it had sort of receded. And so like the feeling that I had that day had sort of receded and it was like right back. And of course, the, some of the images were were we saw new stuff and mainly what I what I, the stuff that I heard, right? Like, fuck the yes. police, kill the police. Uh, where's Mike Pence? Like these years, like, oh, my God. These people, oh, Nancy, oh, Nancy, that stuff. That stuff was terrifying, terrifying. It was a horror movie. Yeah, it it was a complete horror movie. And and what I think was important about doing that is it was being read into the historical record for the nation. Uh, And that is why I think the House House impeachment managers did such a good job because they put they were speaking as American patriots, as statesmen, as who we used to be. Mm-hmm. Uh, and and if we had a decent country at this point, he would have been convicted unanimously. Yeah, uh, definitely, definitely. It was so so important for all the reasons you said, right? Because, and I read about I read this recently uh, this week in response to this, and that is we when we forget, right? When we turn a blind eye, when we uh, sort of paper over what happened in the past, the horrible things that happened, we are ensuring that they happen again in the future, right? And, and the Civil War, the way the Civil War ended in the end of Reconstruction, and then the restructuring of the narrative around states' rights is why we are here right now, right? The, the reason why we are sitting here talking about an insurrection is because the last inter- insurrection wasn't taken seriously. And that's why we're still here. You know, so this is so important to read this into the into the record and know that, look, the so that so that for posterity. It'll be there for posterity. Also, uh, this also took the final unmasking of the GOP is complete. Yes. But now they are on record. They are on record being okay with insurrection, with not holding the, the their their guy accountable purely for political reasons. They stand for nothing now. And it's obvious, but power. Yeah, the fig leaf has been completely just ripped away. And I was really actually happy that, you know, in the it, it's kind of like there was a couple of people who were on the fence. The initial vote for the constitutionality of the trial was 55-45. Right. And then there was another uh, vote that happened where there was an additional, some uh, an, an, someone else uh, what was what was that vote? I have to, anyway. It was then fifty six, mm-hmm, mm-hmm, right? And mm-hmm. then for conviction, fifty seven. So we had we had a progression where you saw a couple of people find their spine and their conscience, and I can't name them right now because again, this was just this just happened before our taping. So <laughs> that's important. To- that's really important. And I, you know, it. What I heard, Marco Rubio is one of the most pathetic men, not even in the Senate. Oh, but he was the deciding vote. He was the he deciding was- vote. Yeah. And he is such a piece of garbage. Right. And uh, and such a spot. He's like the quit like him and Paul Ryan. Remember Paul Ryan from the mm-hmm. remember that from the ages ago, uh, the, the spinelessness of these men. Right. They're, the kowtowing to power is astonishing with these guys. But, you know, I heard I saw him interviewed. Uh, I think he went on Fox or whatever. Of course, it was Fox. And, and he was saying, like, look, we it was horrible. Right. Like the way that the that the that the House impeachment managers laid out the course, they they boxed off any 
any reasonable uh, defense, right? They uh, anticipated every deflection, every defense that they mm-hmm. that, that any Republican could have come up with. And so at the end, the Republicans could only say, well, we just didn't want to convict a, a private citizen. They hung their hat on the constitutionality issue because there was there is literally no substantive defense. There is no substantive defense to this. Especially the thing that came out uh, last night, which was that Kevin McCarthy had called Trump mm-hmm. and said, hey, call off your dogs. And mm-hmm. uh, Trump was like, well, I guess there's a lot of people who are a little more upset about the election than you are. You know, little weasel. And and yep. Ke- Kevin McCarthy actually said to the president, who the fuck do you think you're talking to? <laughs> which was awesome. I mean, awesome. can you imagine? <laughs> can you imagine saying that to the president of the United States? Right. Um, yeah. And, and look, it, it was just so damning. And oh, Mitch McConnell, can we talk about Mitch McConnell for a second? Just oh. he's just just a craven, craven piece of garbage, because guess what? I was just um, right before we went on. Uh, I went and looked at my at my notifications and he has come out with a scathing speech, like just against Donald Trump now that he voted to acquit. Mm-hmm. A scathing speech. And it's just like, so he he wants to have it both ways, right? Yeah. He wants to have it both ways. So now he his base, who is who are low information voters, right? They will say, oh, well, McConnell voted to acquit, so he's fine. But meanwhile, everyone else who really pays attention to the news will be able to hear McConnell saying, oh, Trump is this, the mall. I'm a frog. You know what I mean? <laughs> um and and I I said this before, I'll say it again, is the real threat to democracy is Mitch McConnell. That is the threat to democracy. Trump was obviously a huge threat in a different way, but the fundamental lasting long-term threat to democracy are men like Mitch McConnell. Absolutely. And the very fact that the Senate, this goes all the way back, I was I was furious and ranting uh, in the past few days about this situation because a lot mm-hmm. of people are going, oh, you know, we're legitimizing a coup attempt, you know, uh, this kind of thing. But the fact is, this all goes back to the Constitution. We are mm-hmm. dealing with the, the right. consequences of having a Constitution that allows minority rule. That's so right. we have... The Senate is, we, you can't do it. 20% of the population of the U.S. can get you 40 votes in the Senate. Yep. And if you're in that situation and you have a filibuster, that means 20% of the population can block any progress. And so yeah. that goes back to the founding fathers. And when you look at it where their sympathies really were, it was with white landowners and slave owners. And we are still dealing with it. We will never fix it until we get past that. And people like Mitch McConnell are are just, they, they, they are standing athwart history. Yeah, that's absolutely right. And, and, you know, people like Mitch McConnell, people like Mitch McConnell, these, these like hanging their hats on procedure instead of substance, right? I mean, we go on and on and on about how terrible this guy is. I mean, think about the bad faith, right? And we talk about all the time, you said this week, right? Like, why talk about bad faith? We all know that these people are in bad faith. And and, and that is important. And I think that, right, the, the key is how do we act on this instead of like, like flipping yep. out with outrage every single time that there's bad faith? Because of course, there's bad faith. I mean, this man, this man said, the argument is that it's not constitutional to, to not. I'm laughing because it's so comical. It's not constitutional to uh, to to impeach a, a, an ex president, but when but when he had the opportunity to do it during the president's term, he refused to do it. So it's like, right. I mean, well, come on. <laughs> this was an okay. Republicans have been terrified of Trump for four years. Mm-hmm. 
Because initially, all those people, Rubio, McConnell, all those people denounced Trump when he first ran. As soon as he got the power, they flipped on the other side. But he has been a thorn in their side, the primary threat to primary anyone who doesn't toe the line. And this was an off-ramp for them because it wasn't about, right? It wasn't about removing him from office. It was about as soon as you got the 67 votes to convict, you could have 51 votes to make sure he could never run again. And they wouldn't do it. They wouldn't do it. And you know what? This is really interesting. And this is something that is really endemic in our in our culture right now. You see it in in our in our in our economy and our culture. It's this short term thinking. right? It's like so they are thinking with in the five minutes in front of their face. Right? That's it. And the same thing with stock buybacks. It's the same thing with the way with, with the way that the uh, the basically it all oh, yeah. comes to, it all comes down to how this quarter does, right? Not how the not how the company is going to be doing in five years. Literally, this quarter. It, it, yeah. it, that's what we think about. So, and and when we think this way, the entire GOP thinks this way, and so they don't think that. Like, look, if we purge Trumpism from the from from uh, from from our party right now. Sure, mm-hmm. we're going to lose a couple cycles of elections, but we'll all but eventually we can become a normal center right party and we can start peeling off conservative democrats, right? Yeah. Independents, right? You would get there's a lot of people who won't vote for Republican right now who would happily vote for a center right party. They don't like the liberals and the left yeah. and the democrats. They don't like any of that. They would be happy to vote for the party of Reagan again. They would be happy to. But yep. these people cannot look more than 5 fucking minutes in front of their face and so the fact that they might lose in 2022 yeah, that they can't they, they can't do it. Here's what's going to happen. I mean, I, I told a couple of people today that uh, in the last week or so that I, I'm really getting out of this long term speculation business because, mm-hmm. you know, we can argue all day long about what's going to happen or what won't happen with the Republican Party or or or, or the nation for sure. that matter. And it doesn't do us any good. What I do know is what it's going to take for us to win. Mm hmm. If we really want to overturn this stuff, we're going to have to go right after this minority rule business. And that means voting rights. That means, uh, you know, voting rights is the key. That's the number one. And and that also means we're going to have to figure out how to how to get more senators, you know, deal, possibly uh, overturn the Electoral College through, you know, these efforts to grant the um, the the votes of a state to the person who wins the national popular vote. Mm-hmm. There's ways that we can do it end runs around the Constitution because we're never going to amend it. Right. So this is what we have to do to win. I'm not going to say what is going to be the outcome, though, because they're going to try to block this at every turn. And so what I think we will see in the next couple of years is just that there's going to be a a, a ton of both criminal and civil lawsuits uh, uh criminal charges and civil lawsuits filed against Republicans, against Donald Trump, against his family. And a lot of the stuff that happened over the last four years is going to get kind of resolved in the next four. And we're going to see, I mean, Nikki Haley has backed away from Trump now, and we're going to see more people backing away from Trump. And if we can do okay, if Democrats can hold their hold the line in the 2022 elections, then we might have a chance. Yeah. Uh, well, this is uh, to, uh, to piggyback on what you're saying is that, as I like to say, I, I'm here for it. Right. So I, I, I say that a lot. Is that like, I don't know what's going to happen. I'm, I'm not in the prediction business, but I do know that whatever it is, I'm going to be here for it. I don't think that these problems, uh, the, the problems that we're going to be talking about 
um, in our guest segment, the problems that we're talking about right now, these problems are not going away tomorrow. They're not going away during my life. So I'm just here for it right now. And what we can do in the most granular sense, vote blue, no matter who, your entire fucking life, all the way up and down the ballot. That's it, right? That is the number one thing that the average Joe can do without yeah. without any qualification, Sean, not even one qualification. It doesn't matter if they're blue, you vote for them. That's it. That's it. They're, that's like, the deal. And, and by it. the way, no attacking our own either. Like, yeah. I, don't, I don't really give a fuck what Andrew Cuomo did, right? He's, yeah, exactly. he's, he's a good Democrat. And we need to stick together because if these motherfuckers can acquit Trump, then we can goddamn well stand behind Andrew Cuomo. Exactly, exactly. And by right, we can stand behind these guys and these women and we have to. And and it's and it's not because we necessarily agree with everything they did, because but but because we have a two party system and one party is dramatically better than the other. That's it. That's, That's it. And pure utilitarianism. That's it. We're, we're gonna hear the stakes right now because um that kind of does it for our news segment. And mm -hmm. we're gonna get right into our main guest segment with Coral Annika Teal. She spent five years from 1979 to 1984 as a handmaid or helpmeet in an abusive headship marriage in the People of Praise cult. Uh, her husband dragged her through a series of seven more patriarchal fundamentalist Christian cults over the next 15 years. I mean, this is tyranny, folks. This is fucking tyranny in the United States of America. You will not believe this interview, okay? Her eight children were held hostage by her husband with the support of the various cult groups and their enablers, which are all patriarchal, male-dominated, male supremacist, violent uh, groups masquerading as Christianity. Um, and so she finally got out in 1999 after experiencing marital sexual assault, intimidation, and threats. She changed her name. She went into hiding in the Oregon State Address Protection Program. Uh, according to Tim King, editor of the Salem News, the story of Coral Annika Teal is one of the most flagrant, outrageous examples of small town injustice in America. And so we'll learn a little bit about this. The People of Praise is mostly a Catholic group that also admits members from other Christian faiths. It operates 22 branches in the U.S. and Canada, as well as in the Caribbean, and it has an estimated 1,700 members. Founded in 1971, the group has its headquarters in South Bend, Indiana. Its members adhere to the Catholic covenant philosophy and the Nicene Creed, Women and children are required to submit to their spiritual head, which is, of course, the man of the household. Ms. Teal has been writing and speaking about her experiences for the past two decades. She's been the subject of countless articles and made dozens of appearances on broadcast media and numerous podcasts. In 2003, she published the first edition of her memoir entitled Bone Shia, Making Light of the Dark, which is available on Amazon in both Kindle and paperback. She gained national prominence in 2020 when she sought to testify at the Senate hearings for recently confirmed Supreme Court Justice Amy Coney Barrett, who is also a member of the People of Praise. So without further delay, The Radical Secular presents Coral Annika Teal. Welcome to The Radical Secular, Coral. We couldn't be more pleased to have you on our show. Thank you. I'm very happy to be with you. Yeah, um, let's get into the t-shirts. Coral, uh, what's on your shirt? Well, I couldn't find my shirt, but I do have a Mothers of Lost Children t-shirt that I wore in front of the White House in a silent prayer vigil in 2010. Oh, I think I saw a picture of that. Uh, well, I have got on a Darwin shirt because it was uh, Charles Darwin's birthday yesterday, and uh, which is also Abraham Lincoln's birthday. And as you can yes. see, at the end of the evolutionary chain, we throw religion in the trash. So that is, <laughs> that's what's on my shirt. Uh, what do you got, Christoph? 
Uh, in a similar vein, uh, I have my Crossbuster Bad Religion t-shirt. Bad Religion is my favorite band of all time and uh, really got me on the path along with some of Sean's early uh, writings, getting out of the cult, uh, really got me on the path towards secularism and towards atheism and towards sort of freedom from that mentality. And the Crossbuster is just classic Bad Religion. And it doesn't seem like a big deal now, I guess, but if this was in 1980 when this shirt with this symbol was created, it was a big fucking deal. Yes. <laughs> and there it is. Thank I you. love that. <clears throat> so, all right. I want Coral, I want to start with a quote by Alexander Solzhenitsyn that you used in your yes. book. And this is a great quote. It, it says, to do evil, a human being must first of all believe that what he's doing is good. Ideology or religion, that is what gives devil-doing its long-sought justification and gives the evildoer the necessary steadfastness and determination. That is the social theory which helps to make his acts seem good instead of bad in his own and others' eyes so that he won't hear reproaches and curses but will receive praise and honors. And your story, which has at its core the very same pathologies that we discuss every week here on The Radical Secular, mm -hmm. was really made possible by both religion and the hierarchical right-wing political ideology. Fundamentally, if you look at all of these manifestations of human evil, where are they? Where do they most effectively hide? Within powerful organizations and institutions that are well-respected as bastions of maintaining the common good. And that is churches, charities, cops, CEOs, the justice system, and the government itself our elected representatives. I mean, all these people are supposed to be respectable. Now, I'm not talking about petty thugs and sloppy small-time criminals. I'm talking about people who commit repeated and systematic acts of gross injustice, violence, child rape, Medicare fraud, bribery, buying politicians, systemic corruption on a grand scale. When scandals break, and they break just about every week, who are these people? Many of them were formerly highly respected in the community. They could be well-to-do professionals or businessmen. They could be archbishops, stake presidents in the Mormon church, uh, megachurch pastors, or judges or politicians. Now, I'm certainly not saying that all powerful people are automatically corrupt. There's plenty of good people in all of these roles. What I'm saying is that if you're intent on getting away with doing great harm, this is where you would hide, in plain sight behind the facade of wealth and power and respectability. And this reminds me of another Solzhenitsyn quote that I've always loved that helps explain the complicity of ordinary people when facing the evil of a powerful person. We find, shockingly, as in your story, that many times many people will actually prefer, almost by default, to side with the abuser or criminal and not want to see the accused person's life ruined. So I've seen it over and over again that rather than identify with a victim, people look at an abuser who has a position of wealth and privilege and they often just straight up come out and say it. We shouldn't ruin this person's life based on the testimony of one victim. We heard this during the Brett Kavanaugh confirmation hearings, and we've heard this countless times. So Christoph and I often describe this as the just world fallacy, which is one of the prime tools used in victim blaming, whether it's for poverty or violence or neglect or abuse. But let me read uh, another quote because I believe this has everything to do with why you didn't get the help you needed when facing down your abuser in court. If This is from Solzhenitsyn again. If only it were all so simple, if only there were evil people somewhere insidiously committing evil deeds and it were necessary only to separate them from the rest of us and destroy them. But the line dividing good and evil cuts through the heart of every human being. And who is willing to destroy a piece of his own heart? So, 
Coral, I'm sure you've heard this quote before. It's a tragic commentary on the human condition. Yes. And, and you're right. Um, there was no justice in my case, and every victim does long for justice and vindication and restitution. But uh, I, I find um, a lot of the religious people, the Christians, Catholics, uh, they did side with my abuser, my rapist. And uh, uh, Judith Herman in her book, um, Trauma and Recovery, speaks about this a lot. It's one of my favorite books, and I recommend that to all of your audience, Trauma and Recovery by Judith Herman, MD. And uh, she speaks about how you can't really be sitting on the fence. You have to choose sides. And most times people choose the perpetrator, the predator, because the predator doesn't ask for anything. But the, mm. We need compassion. We need help. There's a lot the victim will need um, to, in seeking justice. So it's really easy to side with the predator. They don't ask for anything. Right, right. Well, let's start with the basics here. I gave a brief description of the People of Praise cult in the intro, but what we're here to talk about today isn't anywhere near just about People of Praise. This right. is more the story of your life and the whole constellation of sexual trauma, religious abuse, domestic violence, and really conscious systematic torture at the hands of the patriarchy that frankly almost killed you. I mean, yes. I read your story. It's so hard to read because you almost died. And you should have been a free citizen of the United States of America with liberty and justice for all, you know, who, I mean, and, and instead you were essentially kept as a prisoner by your own family in conditions that in some cases were as bad as what Solzhenitsyn endured in a Soviet prison camp. It's just a completely shocking story that strains the boundaries of our understanding that something like this could have occurred right here in the U.S., right under our noses in modern times during our lifetime in the state of Oregon. So yes. We want to hear the story from you from the beginning. I hope you're not tired of telling it because it just needs no. to be told. <laughs> and my own story shocks me too. Even preparing for this today and to speak about it out loud is, is traumatizing, but um, I'm thankful for both of you for this program that you help raise the consciousness in our society. We do need to speak about these things and loudly and forever. And uh, we need to share our voice so that others that don't have a voice yet or those who are gone that we will be their voice. I just wanted to share one point too, that I choose not to participate in the silence that protects perpetrators and isolates survivors. And we do need to stop shaming and blaming victims. And our society is so good at that. And, uh, but did you want me to start with my childhood? Uh, well, yeah, let's, let's start with your childhood. And, and, you know, um, because again, this, you don't just suddenly wind up in one of these groups, right? So I, I just kind of want to trace the lineage of how this happened yes. through your life. And did you have a normal childhood or did you go to a public school or would you go to a religious school? What, what was it like? No, not normal. Um, uh, my childhood, I was born in Michigan. My father was a captain in the Air Force. And then I spent a lot of my childhood and young adult life in, near McCord Air Force Base in Washington. We moved there when I was three years old. Um, my father had some health problems um, when I was around six or so years old. So we moved to Kennewick, Washington, where my grandparents had a home where we could live in it for rent free while he was um, getting through his health issues. Uh, he then got better, but at the same time, uh, my life revolves around my great uncle, uh, Herschel Stonebreaker. And um, 
he he in 1955 uh, executed his 16 year old daughter in front of his wife, her sisters, and um, the boyfriend. He um, I looked up his court records. I do research and my my story is well documented, but I did find his testimony in court that he said that she deserved it. He did get life. Um, he was at the Walla Walla State Prison, and I remember as a young girl, we were visiting him often, and I was just told it was where he worked. And it was not a good place to bring a young child. I was five and six at the time, and um, we were in the waiting room with all the couples, And but Walla Walla State Prison was where I met my uncle and where I thought he worked, and my family adored him. My father was his favorite uncle. My grandmother was her favorite brother, and when... Um, I was in elementary school. He was uh, he was let out. He did not have to do his full prison term of life. He had also raped all his three daughters, but he got out because of our family support. Probably spent maybe six or so years in prison. And he six years, six years. He, yeah, he lived with us. Um, we were in Kennewick, Washington. He was not to be around young daughters or girls. He was not to be around his ex-wife um, or daughters, but this is what happened. He lived with us. And I think his parole officer was uh, missing in action. But uh, my mother uh, was not a uh, um, probably narcissistic, sociopathic. And I believe she hated me as a young child. I was a girl. I did have a brother. Um, he was very entitled in our family. But uh, because of me just being a female, <laughs> um, I believe her hate uh, started at a very young age to me. And she put me, my grandmother and mother put me in the bedroom with my great uncle um, nearly every night. And my uncle was also alcoholic. He threatened me and, um, and that's where my life started. And a lot of it ended there at that time. I lost my voice and my identity before it ever begun. Um, but I, I survived that. Uh, I believe there's a red X that's on your forehead that predators can see when you have survived those kind of experiences. And even as an adult now, I am learning still to be assertive. Um, but that did lead a lot into my young adulthood and marriage, that experience. And um, uh, at the time, I remember even my uncle wanting to date his ex-wife. And then within weeks, I remember as a young child feeling shocked because I heard his ex-wife burned in a house fire, a mysterious house fires. So there were a lot of things going on. And even when my uncle uh, murdered his daughter, my grandmother protected him and hid him from the police. And uh, so that was the beginning. And um, then my young adulthood, uh, we were living in Auburn, Washington and re renovating an old farmhouse. And he came to live with us because he was alcoholic at that time. And my father invited him and I was in my junior high years. And I remember picking up the call and it just made me shake. And I and I believe, you know, you're, you're not able to piece what happened. You just know you're incredibly terrified of someone. And he came to live with us. Um, I had to take care of him while he was going through um, cleaning up from alcoholism. And uh, that was very traumatizing for me. My grades went down and I, I couldn't understand what was going on, but I do as an adult now. Um, then we moved from there and my father was a pilot again in Vancouver, Washington, and um, I was co-valedictorian in my high school class. It was expected I get straight A's. My father and mother expected me to be a pilot at a young age, um, and I paid for my pilot instruction in ground school at age 17, and 
soloed within maybe eight hours at the Pearson Air Park in um, Vancouver, Washington. And then I, after graduation, I began court reporter school. There was a part of me that was, uh, maybe the intelligence part was going well, but the whole emotional uh, identity part had been uh, murdered. <laughs> I believe it's soul murder when you rape children. And uh, so my whole childhood with my mother, especially my father was gone a lot as a pilot, but she'd throw Bibles at me in the middle of the night. Um, I was her personal slave. I did support my parents when my father was ill by splitting wood and keeping them in their home. And I just really didn't have a childhood. It was just working for them and then rape for years as a child and and then just great expectations, not a lot of sleep and uh, a lot of brutality, a lot of beatings as a young child too that were somewhat forced. I, I think my mother enjoyed watching my grand my grandfather beat me, but that was the beginning. And um, it wasn't until I collapsed at age 38 that I began to put the pieces together. And in my book, I share that my collapse, so it was hor horrifying. It was extremely painful, but I was able to start um, putting pieces together. And uh, I am thankful for that. It started my life anew. And it also um, was the end of any other life I'd had up to then. But uh, my marriage, um, I don't know if you want me to go into meeting. Well, I want to talk about, yeah. And I want to, I just wanted to say, I mean, like, it's just a horrific story that your family would, your own family would put you in with a, a convicted killer. And, uh, you know, while knowing that he was also a sexual abuser, I just can't, I just, it, it's. On how purpose. Does it, how does it happen? On purpose. On purpose. Um, I mean, it, it's, it's hard to wrap one's mind around that and, uh, and just how, how a mother, you're a mother, right? How you one could 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 allow anybody, but certainly a child to go through that. And really remarkable, and I just want to talk about this briefly, is that, you know, a pilot's license, valedictorian, like these sort of amazing accomplishments, I think it's just a testament to your inner strength that perhaps you didn't realize you had at that time. But clearly, in retrospect, wow, what an inner strength. Yeah, absolutely. Um, yes, I, about my mother, um, you know, some people, they can't understand my grandmother and mother, but uh, some people and sharing with me, some of my mentors, we've talked about it. Uh, I think my grandmother wanted to save my, uh, her brother from going back to prison. So I might've been given to him to keep him home. They knew what he was most likely doing. That's oh. what I thought. Uh, I don't know where his parole officer was, but um and then later when I was writing my book, I did go to Kennewick. I, I did meet my mother and grandmother at that time in 96 or in 98. I started writing and start to piece things together. It's hard. You continue to piece things together all your life. There's no end to that journey. So that's why I live in radical amazement, even being <laughs> both of you today. I, I, this is wonderful. And I, I did not know that years ago, but I went to the city and um, some people told me in Kennewick that my uncle had actually raped another girl and he was in court and my grandmother got him a really good attorney and he didn't have to go back to prison, but that was the same time they were putting me in his room. And so it didn't keep him from harming other girls, but they also kept putting me in his room. Um, and then the only other thing I found out too, as a young adult, my father was alone with me one time when my mother traveled to visit her relatives. And he told me that his marriage was set up that my mother forced him to marry her. He, she said she was pregnant. She wanted to marry a pilot and she wasn't. They didn't have me for three more years. So 
their marriage was started in a lives. And I think because my father did love me as a child, uh, that created a jealousy as she was a very unwell person. And so a lot of these dynamics were created through that. I see. Did you ever get any acknowledgement like you when you said you went back to to talk to them? Did you ever get any acknowledgement from your mother or any sort of apology? No, I even wrote them while I was publishing my book and just shared, you know, my counselors can't help me. There's nothing anyone can say. And this would have to be from you. And they both wrote me and said they were not sorry. And even on my mother's deathbed, I did stop seeing her and contacting for 10 years. Mm -hmm. uh, 10 years, she died 10 years ago. But up from the time of my divorce, I just knew she would call me and tell me everything was my fault because I didn't obey her enough and I wasn't serving her. And was I reading my Bible? Did I believe in Jesus? And it was just a lot of mental abuse. And then um, I just told her one time, Mom, this is our last call. And I, I just wish you all the best. And I, I have nothing against her. I, I hope for everybody's highest good. But when there's a toxic person, a dangerous person around you, I just tell everybody, um, all victims, safety, safety, safety first. Mm -hmm. You got to draw the first, And then boundary. go work on the other. But um, yeah, I did talk to them. I talked to my mother at the end. She'd always say she loved me. And then I talked to her about this too, once again. And she just said she wasn't sorry. And I was on the phone when she was dying in the hospital. I, I took the high road. My doctors were very, and mentors were very concerned about that. They said, don't let her, don't let her take you to the grave. But I don't know if I do that again, but I, I was there for her. But, um, you know, I always knew throughout my childhood, she'd be, it was kind of like the Carrie movie and Mommy Dearest, uh, you know, just throwing things at me in the middle of the night, screaming at me. She wasn't a well person. And uh, she'd always tell me, I'm taking her out of my will. I mean, she said this even as a child. So I did work for them. I built them homes. I kept them in their home when my father was ill. But even at the end, she was saying, come and see us all. Come and see your cousin, you know, and me. And we love you all. And, um, like it never happened. <laughs> yeah, like it, uh, well, never yeah happened. like it never happened. And she wasn't sorry for what she did. So I, I call that it's just delusional. And uh, I can't I can't meet up with that. It's just, you know, they talk about that in politics, too, when people want unity. No, I'm not going to. Yeah with your racism, your bigotry, your anti-human rights, um, you know, beliefs. So I, um, I told her, no, you know, I was impoverished anyway. I didn't have a car and wouldn't be able to travel anyway. But um, on the pawn of her death, uh, this was 10 years ago. And I might write my cousin a letter again this week. But um, my mother had a substantial estate because I built their estate. I worked hard all my life for them. And, um, and then my brother had died. My mother, brother, and grandmother died the same year, in 2009, 2010. And my brother had a sizable stake because my mother had given him 100000 to buy hundreds of acres for his Christian ministry there in Washington State. And he was a lot like my ex-husband and other extreme fundamentals and believed he was a prophet and exercised people for demons, including me, and told me I was going to hell after my divorce. But um, when we were younger, before he went that direction, we were close. But he, I, I was given a dollar from a substantial quarter million dollar state. I read that in your book, in your book, that you were basically that, that your inheritance was, you got a dollar, right? Yes. And, and, and I, I even else. have the check. I have a picture of it, but I, <laughs> it. I never, it. Um, but I that's did worse. write my, that's worse than getting letter. nothing. That's worse than getting nothing. Well, it's like, it's she, like, <laughs> she did that. So I couldn't, um, uh, object to the, right. 
my wealthy cousin, I'll say her name, Beverly Murky of Walla Walla, uh, Washington, and her husband, they're both well off and their children are grown. She got the estate and she had never taken care of my mother. I did for years. Yeah. Um, and I took all the abuse. I took the rapes. I thought, what do you give somebody that was raped hundreds of times? You know, a dollar. Well, yes. Is, I will not do her before. I, I just mentioned this to your audience. There is in the 1980s um, a Child Abuse Accountability Act, and there was for a young girl that was raped by her attorney father, um, was able to sue her parents for not protecting her, for being predators in her life. So there is that law, but I could never, because I was poor, could never find an attorney to uh, represent me. It's all admitted, even in letters, and everybody knew what was going on. So it wasn't a, a question, but I just knew, you know, I, I want counseling. I want I want something for this time in my life that was taken. But those were um, what I learned through writing my book and and I, I might write um, Beverly Murky this week because um, I've lived under poverty level since my divorce. It's taken a lot. I've been in court 50 times, legally stalked, sued for twice that I make for child support as a disabled woman, even living out of my car to my ex-husband. And it's taken about a quarter million um, just to get away from them. Uh, and even representing myself for the most of 24 years just taking my life. I could never keep a job, but I, I just want to let her know there's times I haven't had car. I haven't had health insurance, medical care, and food. And I just hope you're good with this. And she's a devout Catholic um, in the Walla Walla, Washington community. Mm. She, she won't feel any, any conscience I know that, about that. that. It's, it's okay. But, I say <laughs> we need to, what do you call it? Put it out to the universe and um, put people on notice. You can just say, <laughs> you know, what it would be is if your family had, had, uh, treated you with dignity, then it would have set up an even bigger conflict for them with what they allowed to happen to you. So, mm -hmm. so by, by devaluing you and giving you a dollar that it was, it's, it's it, that made everything balance in their kind of crooked account books. Right. Mm -hmm. It was so I couldn't object to the will. If yeah. they hadn't given me something, I could have taken it to court. Right. And it's pretty clear from your book also that this uh, sort of dehumanization that you experienced growing up kind of set you up for your marriage. And um, it was your your husband, Martin Warner, who brought you into the People of Praise group. Um, can you tell us about how you met him, uh, how old you were, um, you know, and, and just basically, you know, if you think, how did, did, did your childhood make you susceptible to Oh, yes. Yes, definitely. And I believe that happens to most people. Um, and it's, you know, we're all on different journeys and our healing will take place at different times. And I tell people to be patient with your healing. There's no timetable. There's things I learned um, in my 40s that, boy, they might have helped me a lot when I was younger. I wish we had high school classes that taught about social set paths, narcissism, psychopaths, mm -hmm. uh, rape, abuse, uh, patriarchy, how it condones this type of behavior and ideology along with civics classes. Those would be great. I um, often think that they should do um, sample dialogues with, with, with to, to show how gaslighting works and to oh, show yes. how, how manipulators yes. and how people, uh, abusers and pedophiles groom children, right? And even high school girls, right? Mm -hmm. I think if they, the, if they did the, the mock dialogues and they... And they, and they, they, they kids were exposed to how this works, but how did it work for you? What did he say to you? And what was it like when you, when you first met him? 
Well, the um, to set up, uh, my father was absent. I believe he did his best to care about me, although he didn't protect me. I'll share one note. Um, I don't know if I shared it in my book, but the, because why he cared about my uncle so much and loved him and why he ended up in our home a couple of times. Uh, my dad, my grandmother had my father when she was 16 in Oklahoma, poor in a family of, I think there was 14 of them. I think her grandmother, her mother started raising my father. Um, but my grandmother married my step-grandfather, maybe when my father was four or so, but my step-grandfather was very cruel. I, I was at the end of his cruelty as a young child and severe beatings to where I couldn't walk. Uh, and then on top of that, at night, I'd be raped. Um, but my father, one time, my uncle, Rachel, the murderer and rapist, rapist of me, uh, saved my dad a couple times from his step-grandfather beating him with chains and whips. And you do. you When somebody comes to save you, they become a hero in your life. And possibly for my father, without other education about these types of things. Um, it was a blind spot for him and he didn't protect me. So all of my family is guilty really, but my It's part of the cycle of abuse, right? Because mm -hmm. that bond where he saved him from his father now made yeah. him, there's a blind. personal loyalty, which means that he's going to turn a blind eye to all that other, other things. Else. Yeah. Yes. But, um, and my mother abused him uh, in our family. She abused me. Uh, she protected my brother. He could do anything. And that was just male entitlement in our family. Mm -hmm. My father was absent a lot. And um, I do believe it's just a personal belief. Uh, I, I say in my book or anything, I say, eat the meat, spit out the bones. But this is just from observation that often the some of our initial relationships are unfinished business of possibly very unwell or abusive parents. It's something mm -hmm. you can't see often. But like a girl, if she's dating a young man, he's an alcoholic, but she thinks if I just do this, 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 he'll stop that and treat me well because my father didn't. Um, but my ex-husband was very much a personality of my mother in the same forms of abuse, same type of gaslighting, same types of cruelty, um, just different, different layers of it. But uh, I was going to court reporter school, paying for it. And right after my graduation of high school in 19... Uh, 1973, and court reporter school was in Portland, Oregon. I was in Vancouver, Washington. In 1974, if you remember history, there was a great fuel crisis. Um, so I was riding the bus out of just save money, but a lot of the town ended up riding the bus. It was packed for months on end. And in the middle of the night, I'd get up and fill my dad's car with gas because he was a pilot and had to get to work. So I'd wait in lines for hours and then get up and ride the bus uh, to, to my school. So there was a lot of people that usually never rode the bus on it. And uh, it was packed, standing room only. And one time I got on the bus and I talked to Martin Warner, um, my ex-husband behind me, uh, as he was talking to me. I think we eventually sat down when a seat opened, um, the only seat open, and he talked to me. And he knew my name was Kathy, but I didn't share my phone number or anything. And a week or so later, he arrived at our house in Vancouver, Washington. He was six years older, an engineer for CH2M Hill. Um, and uh, six years older is a lot. I was 18. Um, but I did not know I hadn't been allowed to date. I was just working for my parents, you know, studying, flying lessons, court reporter school, uh, all those things without a life and without much sleep, just 
uh, just my mother's and my relationship was pretty much full time and pretty intense, but uh, I didn't quite understand what was going on. Uh, but he wanted to talk to my dad, my mom, and he was there. And I didn't know, not know how to get away from my own family, let alone him. That's just the basics. And so he was basically coming in just kind of in a way like the old school, ask your dad if it was okay to date you sort of thing. Sort of like that. He was wanting to chum me up with my dad. And um, I did not know what to, I didn't have any experience and like I say, I'd been brainwashed pretty much all my life and abused and uh, not knowing a lot of things that were going on. Um, I did not know how to get away from anyone. I just didn't have any tools. I had no mentors. I had no one to talk to, nowhere to go. And that was my life for many years, even after I escaped. No one to talk to, nowhere to go. Uh, until in 97, I did have a mentor, Dr. Barbara May, who is still a mentor to me. And was quite huge help. She's a gift in my life. But up till then, it was always that. No one to talk to, nowhere to go. And so with him, what is this? What's going on? I, I, I had not a clue. And I believe uh, there is. I wrote about it in my book. There's a red X on victims. And until you can get your land legs, until you can find out what went on, uh, that red X is there. There's um, my mentors even told me there's a study done at Oregon State Penitentiary. They said, give us five minutes on the outside. Go find every woman, man, with a red X on their forehead. They'll wow. Be, they'll be great prey. And uh, they do know how to, to um, abuse us. And so I think my, I think my hus ex-husband even knew, I think he knew. And he even asked me one time. It was shortly in the beginning. And I did not know, like now I tell people, you don't have to answer anybody. In fact, I tell people, I feel very open and safe with both of you. But sometimes people come up to me just as a stranger. They've maybe had um, bits and pieces of my book or heard about my life. And they'll ask me something incredibly invasive. Mm -hmm. is, why do you want to know? Right. Not all well, people have good intentions. So for no. me, um, with him, yeah, I think he was a lot like my mother. I, I, I had no land legs from that. And I had no, uh, I, I had never pieced my childhood. I, I knew a lot had happened. Um, and I just kept getting up every day and doing the next thing that was expected of me. And uh, with him, I, I wanted to get away. And yet I felt threatened. Um, I did not know how to get away. That's that's about all I can put it. And I'd lost my voice. I'd lost my identity as a six-year-old girl. Yeah. But after the meeting of my husband, I he continued to come and see us. And then it kind of ended up, I, I thought he was kind of a friend. I didn't induce him as a friend. Um, I eventually met his family, which is, they are a lot like him. His older sister, Peggy Warner, ridiculed me and humiliated me from the moment I met her. And so... I realize a lot of people are like that. There's a lot of people that are um, enablers of predators. There's a lot of people that are just cruel in general. Yeah. His family was Catholic. And so it, it evolved from after that. And then I did not know how to get away. And then I thought, oh, I'm moving to Longview, Washington. I'm going to have a court reporter job there. And it was my mother didn't even want me leaving the home because she just looked at me as a slave to her. And so there was a lot of was her screaming at me and a lot of terror just in my life of just moving out and going and having a job. This was in 74 or so. And, and then 
Marty Warner, who I was just in my life (laughs) for two years before we got married, he moved his Oregon State University master's degree project from Oregon State up to Longview, Washington. And then he'd just be sitting on the courthouse stairs waiting for me to get off work. And um, it was just my life didn't have any freedom. I did not know what that was. And I did not know how to say no to people. I I felt threatened. And uh, there's just many things I felt, but that I had a choice. Um, There was many times I wanted to leave, but he asked me once too, he said, you've been raped and molested as a child, haven't you? And it was like, yes, Uh, I hadn't talked about that to hardly anyone, but he, till this day, um, would pry information from me, from others, that went on all throughout our marriage. Uh, get into that later, but invasive. I'll say it was just very invasive. You'd call it stalking now. And then yeah. it actually ended up in a brutal rape in 75 in Longview, Washington at my apartment. I was shocked. Um, and after that, my Christian fundamental friends and teachers say, you're damaged goods. You've got to marry them. That was the mentality at that time. I know a lot of people can understand that, but there's, I know people to this day that believe like that. Uh, even the cults I was through, uh, not believing, uh, not even thinking of me as a victim that I belong now to this man. And so patriarchy to me, it's the crux of all of my ills in life. And I believe a lot of the majority of the society and the world's ills and that I wrote a chapter in my book that I, how I became a broodmare and egg donor for the church and state. Right. Hey, Coral, yeah. Coral, let me ask you this. Let me ask you this. So, so was in the beginning, was there ever a time during the relationship when things were good, right? Was there like a golden age, like a, like a, like a golden, <laughs> oh. or, or did it just go right into the abuse? Cause it sounds to me like it just went right into the abuse, like full it, on. It did. Um, there was a, I'll call it trauma bonding, even with my abusers, um, trauma bonding. My great uncle who raped me would build sometimes a little playhouse for me. We were poor at the time, but he'd build something for me. And it was like, oh, wonderful. Somebody's done something somewhat kind. And then that night I'd be raped. It was really mixed up in my head um, and nothing, nothing to put any good there for me. Uh, but I wrote in my book a great deal about trauma bonding and Stockholm syndrome. So if mm. I can your questions, those were both going on in a huge way with my parents, grandparents, um, with Marty Warner. Um, yeah. Well, husband. So Stockholm syndrome, uh, there was a certain amount of, wow, it's not as bad with him as with my mother or great uncle or grandparents. Wow. Haven't been beaten. Uh, maybe this is, uh, there was certain few things he would do that would create something where I felt like maybe he understood me or maybe there was a little bit of safety here, but it was Stockholm syndrome. You know, you're just thankful for, Oh, I'm alive today. Uh, harm me. I'm still alive. Uh, (laughs) Something struck me about what you said about the red X Mm -hmm. and about him asking you that question about whether you'd been a sexual abuse victim. And there was a moment in the show, the keepers where the young woman goes into the confessional and the priest asks her, if or she confesses to having been abused or whatever it is and immediately as soon as the priest found that out he told the other priest and they marked her with that red x and they immediately started started abusing her 
I believe that happens a lot in the Catholic Church. I believe it's a predatory criminal church, and I believe a lot of priests do that to young boys, too. Mm -hmm. I know, um, I've gone to some of the SNAP conferences in Arlington, Washington, or Virginia, and met the detective from The Keepers. I recommend all your viewers watch The Keepers. It's one of my favorite documentaries, and it does resemble a lot of my life. It was very difficult for me to watch it. And uh, due to watching it, I did go to a SNAP conference, the survivors of priest uh, rape. Um, they have a conference every year, and the detective from the Keeper's documentary was there to speak. And uh, I, I just am very, um, I profoundly moved by how the documentary just, it mirrored my own life. And uh, I do believe a lot of priests groom young boys that way in the confessional. Um, just even ask, having them confess about things that young boys should not even, it's not the priest's business, but it is a way for the priest to groom them and to make them feel guilty about their sexuality. Um, but Christian churches do this too. I believe they're both <laughs> as guilty. Um, and I believe it's just a place for a lot of predators. And um, a lot of people come up to me then and now, and they'll say, oh, I've heard your story, I've read your book, um, whatever. And they'll say, well, I go to a good church. Right, <laughs> oh, of course. Oh, and I look, I'll tell you my answer to every one of them. I don't care if I've, you know, interviewed a lot of them, Marines, colonels. I've been a lot of them, around a lot of the military. I, I don't care who it is. I'll say, well, I was the woman in the back room with your pastor at your good church, and you would never hear about it. He mentally tortured me during my collapse and postpartum depression breakdown. I had a partial stroke. I couldn't speak. I couldn't move. And he just mentally tortured me and called me names, accused me of witchcraft. And um, he was the one that helped my husband put me in a halfway house with ex-cons. But I've heard from many of his victims because I have a book that people Google. They Google Bill Hurd's name, and I expose Bill Hurd and his wife, Linda Hurd. And I have heard from many, many of his victims, and he's helped many abusers get custody of the children and take them from protective, nurturing mothers. So I just say, hey, the Christian and Catholic Church, they're equal in my eyes. And yes, I've been abused. Um, yeah. I, yeah. Can, can you tell us a little bit, because I mean, I know this... Everyone has seen The Handmaid's Tale. Um, yes. Many people who are, you know, sort of awake to what's going on in this country are familiar with fundamentalist Christianity and the hierarchical structures and all that kind of stuff. But what was the specific doctrine of this group? What does it mean to be a head versus a helpmeet? Um, were you ever called of Martin? Did, was is that some a language that they used? No, not at that time. And I know the people of praise have removed that word handmaid since the handmaid tale came out. And the handmaid tale, um, she did uh, write it from another cult, not the people of praise cult, but we were called handmaids. And uh, I tell people when they ask what it was, I say, well, if you want to get it in a short couple sentence, it was all about the oppression and subjugation of women, period, full stop. Mm -hmm. Yeah alarm everyone that we have a Supreme Court justice that belongs to this cult and accepts that ideology. And that was my that was what I belonged to. That's the ideology I had to accept. I had no rights, zero, none. And, and I you, headship. You mentioned in the book that there that that it didn't have to be a male head. There could be female heads. And I, yes. that, that was interesting to me. 
Yes, I had, my husband was my head. He had absolute authority over me. I could not question it. I could not appeal it. Uh, I had to do whatever he, he wanted at all times. Uh, then I also had a head that was a woman head. Her name was Connie Hackenbrook. For those five years, I was in the Corvallis, Oregon People Praise Community cult. And she had authority over me. And she would report me to my husband or to her head or my husband's head. She was called my handmaid. I was a handmaiden. So she was married to a leader in the community. So I suspect that Supreme Court Justice Amy Coney Barrett was most likely a handmaid at one time. And I said, as far as the Handmaid's uh, Tale series, my life was very much like that for 20 years. And I related very much to the series. Um, yes, handmaids, uh, our handmaids were in authority over us. My husband had a head and that was authority over him and authority over me. <laughs> I had a lot of people voicing, and then I was also checked up on by my husband's uh, men's group. They would come at any time of the day to check up on me, and that was allowed. And uh, I had a chart on the wall of every half hour, and when the laundry had to be in, the meals on the table, you know, just everything, what meetings I was attending, at what time. I had no time to my life, and that's how cults operate to occupy. That's what patriarchy does to you, too. So you don't have time to think. But yeah, right. that kind of authority it was all about the subject subjugation of women. And uh, that's all. That's all that it was about in a lot of patriarchy. That is really the basis of a lot of patriarchy. No matter how good or progressive your church is, that's how it operates. And it was in the extreme form. I tell people I got bored. I, I did watch the Handmaid series, and I could always tell what was going to happen the next week. Wow, that is so... I knew that handmaid, after she uh, they took her baby away, she'd be on the bridge next week. Then they'd be asking the other handmaid to walk her off the bridge because they definitely needed to breastfeed her child. Um, but it was chattel. We weren't anything. Uh, we Slaves. Had, had no... Uh, maybe I, I uh, don't know. I'm sure not as horrific as slavery was, but in another sense... Slaves, yes. Oh, absolutely. So I, this is what well, I want to draw this connection, and I wonder if you agree with this because uh, we talked. You talked earlier about about uh, we're talking about how uh, you people say, "Oh, my church is nice and my church is fine," but it's like, no, no, no. That is just a watered down version of the same fucking problem, right? And and, and 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 similarly, similarly, this is what I think about. I'm drawing the connection now between the anti-abortion crowd, right? Because. <laughs> That's also just a watered down version of that same kind of slavery, right? It's like, yes. look, look, we're going to control your body. That's the bottom line. We want to keep saying that it's, it's about controlling the woman. The That's woman. what it's always about. However, and if I could, yes. And if I can go into another dimension of it, um, the KKK, uh, they had wives, they had children. The wives were supporting the husband's lynching of black men and women. There's always been women who have been supporting the patriarchy in whatever lighter or worse form it has been. A Mary Turner, there were women and men there that hung her and ripped her baby out of her. There's horrific stories of that, but patriarchy, um, all the churches I was dragged through, the women treated me the same. It was no different. And I believe a lot of our ills of society is because women, even if they are like women, like Supreme Court Justice Amy Coney Barrett, 
well, maybe she's a few higher rungs up in the cult than I was, but she's paying a cost. She still does. She's still a slave to them. She may have a few more rights than I do, but she is still costing me. Even for her, she knew what was going on while I was exposing the people of praise. So she was helping men harm me, harm me and target me, even Trump's attorneys and watchdogs. There was harm done, even with me having a voice. And she was a part of that. So whether it be the KKK, white supremacist, nationalist, um, extreme forms of patriarchy, it's all the same. It puts women in that same place. That's, that's a really great point. And like the the it's always the, the, the theme is the same, right? If you from the Proud Boys to the KKK, it doesn't matter. It's always a combin of like a sick combination of homophobia, yes. patriarchy, and racism. And it's like, and really it's about power, right? Power yes. is what we're talking about here. It's always about power. Always. These are different permutations of the same problem. And it's yeah. cruelty to and cruelty. Oh my goodness. Uh the people praise. There was crimes committed against me. Crimes. Uh, cruel. Absolute crimes. I mean, crimes. Your, your book, we'll get into that a yes. little bit later. But while we're on the subject of, of patriarchal women, I just wanted to mention the Mrs. America series and Phyllis Schlafly and mm -hmm. the women. It was it was all women who were yes. against the ERA, who were, who were part of right. her group. And then there was the, the fundamentalist. Uh, I forget who it was, but she I, I, she had a huge mailing list that was instrumental in Phyllis Schlafly's effort and she donated her, her mailing list. And so the entire torpedoing of the ERA was because of women. Yeah. Yes. Yes. Um, the ex-husband has donated a lot of monies to Phyllis Schlafly and there was, were many political women's groups he donated to. Um, he was a part of that for years, anything that was about the oppression and subjugation of women and anti-choice or, pro-life. Pro and he used to use our family. We'd go in front of the Capitol in Oregon and he'd bring us to the pro-life rallies and line up myself and my children, even though I was being raped. I was being raped. I had no rights. And uh, we were just lined up in the pews or at those rallies. And he was chairman of the Right to Life of Portland, Oregon. He served wow. As chairman, and I am a victim of rape. It's documented. The judge and my ex-husband laughed about my rapes in court. It's on audio tape, so I write with great boldness and with a with a voice uh, because it's all documented in audio tapes. And even he's proud of what he did. Um, we we all knew. Chairman of Right to Life is a rapist. We we all have known the entire time who these people are. Like I've, I yes. mean, whenever you see the right to life groups and how horrible they are and the way they harass women who are trying to go to the clinic and everything else like that, you know that there's all kinds of stuff going on in the background. But now to hear your story, it confirms what we all knew in general terms. And I, I want to talk a little bit about uh, doctrine here. And I don't know. Because there are specific Bible verses who, that talk about the wife submitting to the husband. But I also, there's this Nicene Creed, which goes back. And I know that that is something that's very big in the People of Praise group. Did that have anything to do with what happened? And I know there's two versions. There's one that includes Mary and there's one that doesn't. And um, that might mirror sort of the doctrinal split between the Catholic and Protestant church. But did this play any role for you? No. They're mostly, I believe, mostly it's a crime syndicate, and most of them are narcissists, sociopaths. And so it's not about doctrine at all. No, no, they're Catholic. <laughs> they're Catholic. They're Catholic, but they, right. Uh, and a few Protestants, but mostly Catholic. Uh, the co-founder 
uh, Kevin Ranahan is a deacon in the um, Catholic Church in South Bend. Uh, mm. I met the co-founder, Paul DeSales and Jeannie DeSales. They came to Corvallis, Oregon, gave teachings. I met many of their leaders. I babysat their children while they were calling me in- mentally ill and poisonous. I was mentally ill, but I guess not so mentally ill that I couldn't watch their young children. Uh, so. <laughs> well, a, a coherent stream of logic is completely unnecessary in that from that sort of mentality, right? Like, it doesn't matter. You can just make up things as you go along, as long as it involves yes. cruelty and subjugation of women, then yes. it's all good. Yes. And that's pretty uh, mind bending. It's like I have good critical thinking skills, but I was so exhausted, uh, a lot of sleep deprivation and mm-hmm. exhaustion and, and then uh, just a lot of uh, mental and emotional abuse. I call it mental uh, emotional rape to mm-hmm. uh, use all these tools against a human being. Um, even Father Charles Harris, he was from South Bend. He was a tongue speaking, speaking in tongues uh, priest that started in the 70s, this movement. So he moved to Corvallis, Oregon and started proselytizing a lot of the young students at Oregon State University. He was a chaplain there. And that's how he got a lot of the young people. And they are now leaders to this day. Uh, that was back in the 70s, 40, almost 40 some years later. But it appealed to their ego. It appealed to power. And uh, any person that's connected, I, I feel they're just disconnected from my myself. There is, is even a quote about the Holocaust that any of those guards, anybody in Germany, there is not, if you feel interconnected to another human being, there is no way you could ever do any of those things. Right. Thankfully, there was the resistance, not a lot, enough of them, but and many of them were just, there's some of my favorite stories. I continue to read books and watch documentaries, but the resistance fighters uh, giving their lives for people they don't even know and dying for them. My relatives in Denmark were resistance fighters and they were in their 20s, crawl out on ropes at night from their apartment because the guard, Nazis were guarding them. They occupied Denmark. Uh, and I told them how brave, I adopted their last name, Teal. But I said, how brave of them. They got 5,000 people out in one night, so they wouldn't be murdered the next day. But when I said how brave they were, they looked at me and said, Coral, our neighbor was in trouble. <laughs> and they're right. not they're not religious at all. They're not Christian. But that's yeah. how I feel, too. And I find that Christianity, there is a huge us and them mentality. Mm-hmm. The racism, it creates the KKK, it creates the bigotry, it creates all of the harm done um, against human rights. And I even notice in the people of praise, my husband, ex-husband, along with the other men, uh, there was a, another member that had a son that was gay. And they were so bigoted towards him and so cruel. And he went off to college, became a doctor, and he's in Corvallis, Oregon now, but he doesn't belong to the cult. But, you know, behind him and behind his father, I heard such horrible things said against him. And so, um, but you're right. uh, The whole theme is subjugation of women and the Mm -hmm. anti-choice. Deeply involved in the people of praise. Well, and you start to see how much they consider rape to just be a method of conception. It's just all yes. about like, let's just pump out more kids. And yes. so, so, so pro rape, anti-abortion, right? More kids. So exactly. <laughs> more um, members and they, yeah. and the children had to meet other members. Like I know many children to this day um, from Corvallis, Oregon met members from South Bend and they're married. I mean, the parents would meet almost, I don't know if it's arrangement, but the children didn't have a lot of a choice. Uh, 
Right. It's a very tyrannical system. I, I feel even funny asking you this, but was there, were there any, is there any charitable aspects or anything that this organization or these fundamentalist groups do for society whatsoever? Well, they're very involved. Um, they do use their power to get involved. They're very involved, like at St. Mary's Catholic Church. Uh, they're very involved in the church, but they believe they're the remnant of God and that the rest of them are lost because they're not speaking in tongues or doing miracles or prophesying. So there's just incredible ego, arrogance and ignorance all put together. And uh, as far as my life, it was cruelty and abuse and harm and shunning and interrogations. Uh, I have so many examples. I write in my book and it's documented by witnesses and affidavits. So yeah. other people come out, but no, I don't see any good. And they, they were able to, to involve the whole community. I mean, the community thought they were a wonderful group. They all lived out in this several acres outside of Corvallis, Oregon, all together. Father Harris even lived out there and people just thought they had these little prayer meetings and we were all just a community of people believing in a similar goal. And uh, many of the counselors in our community just highly praised them. Many of the store owners, the church, St. Mary's endorsed them. So within the community, uh, you couldn't go very far without finding other people who endorsed it. Right. But I just mean, I mean, charity, uh, uh, volunteering, um, doing projects for the community, helping poor people. Is any of that going on or is it just no. completely self-centered? Self-centered. If they knew a poor person, they'd try to get them in the community to take a, take whatever money you had left. We had to give the deed to our home. Um, I had helped buy that home with my own monies. And uh, thankfully the- Wait, what? You mean you, you, you literally signed over the deed to yes. your house? Yes. We were one of the few that owned a home. Uh, through hard work. Uh, but thankfully, many months later, the deal went through. It was to buy a really cheap apartment complex for the whole community or those who didn't have a home in the southern part of Corvallis, in a cheap area. The worth of it wouldn't have been much. And I objected, but I didn't have a voice. There was nothing about my voice. I mean, my critical brain thought, oh my gosh, I'm going to have to live in a tiny apartment with several of my young children and with everybody, neighbors all around and no privacy, no yard. And why? because the community says so, because the people praise leaders say so. But it it fell through, but there were many incidents like that and you did have to tithe to them. And I heard um, someone who knew the inside financial data of this community in South Bend, the leaders make an exorbitant amount of money from our tithes. Of course they do. Of course they do. <laughs> Of course, because yes, um, <laughs> you mentioned in many it, 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 at many points in your life, uh, and I I, I, I want to talk about this later, but just briefly mention it now that you needed medical care, and your husband said to you, "There's no money for medical care." Right. He'd give money to the cult. He'd give money to other people um, that he wanted to. There was many cults he was in, but if they asked for money or people within the community, it'd be a thousand dollar here, a thousand dollar there, but. No, he did not want me seeing my doctor. He wanted me having home births. And I did have several, I had a few home births to, to uh, my detriment. Um, and I, I needed medical care. But even, even just simple medical care, uh, I have affidavits from people of seeing him deny me. Even when I was hemorrhaging after my twins, he denied me. I need to see my doctor. And I, I didn't ever get to see or talk to my doctor alone. That was a rule and a law or be alone with anybody else, medical professional, anybody else. I was to be home. And then as my daughters got older, they were to watch me and report to him. So yeah. they, uh, 
How did that happen? Like, how did it, how did it go to Naturally. what explain, explain how the process went to, to where you were alienated from your children? Because I mean, you're caring for them, you're their mother. And so how did they, it go to the point where they're informing on you? Well, maybe I should go back to the people praise community cult. I will call them a cult because they need all the um, data of cults, even cult experts call them a cult. Uh, so those five years, uh, I knew I wanted to leave the marriage. <laughs> I didn't want to be around abuse. I thought I might go to hell. That's what everybody told me. But at that point, I thought, hmm, already in hell. Uh, <laughs> I don't care. <laughs> you know, already been there. So uh, I wanted to get away, but I had had no family. Uh, my brother was fanatical, religious person like my ex. So I didn't really have his support. But I had three young children, uh, my twins and a son, Aaron. Um, so I had two five-year-olds and a three-year-old while I was in the cult uh, for five, those five years. But the cult leaders knew, they knew of some of my, I guess, objections to their ideology. I asked questions as a person should. And I was threatened by my husband and the cult leaders that if I left, I would not be leaving with my children, kind of like the Godfather movie. Oh yes, you can go, <laughs> the children will be here. And what scared me is I saw another woman get a divorce and she lost her two young children. It was just a matter of fact, she was gone and the children were there with the father. And uh, so I took those threats seriously. And every day of my life, I knew that in a 20 year marriage, he always said that if I tried to leave, I'd lose my children. But I mean, you're, you're looking to your children in the eye, right? And you're, you're feeding them, you're bathing them, you're reading to them, you're doing homework, you're teaching them yes. all the things that you do. And how does that turn from there to being uh, uh, where you lose their loyalty and they're turned against you? That's what I'm interested in, in hearing you talk about. Well, it happened one day, even in 1985, it was maybe months after we were forced to leave the cult because I, I wouldn't go back in. I wouldn't submit to the abuse of the cult leaders or of the structure. And so we went to meetings for six months. I was forced at St. Mary's Catholic Church to sit on the floor outside of meetings. I was forced at meetings. But anyway, I, my ex, my husband was eventually forced out by the leaders because he couldn't get his wife in line. And that created him to be full of rage towards me. And then I, after that, left the Catholic Church that following year because all the people were shunning me in the community. All the Catholics in the community were shunning me and we were going to a Lutheran school, all the Catholics there with their children there. My children couldn't play with them. They were shunning me, wouldn't look at me, walk away from me. And I just I just wanted to be. I, I didn't have anywhere to go other than I thought this is cruel and I don't want any part of it. Um, but that created a lot of rage, a lot of abuse. And um, I tried one day to just go away to talk to somebody about getting away and just getting a divorce. And by the time I came home, my children wouldn't even talk to me, wouldn't even look at me, and they were just holding on to their father like I was some enemy that just entered the home. So it just took one day, and I realized it. It frightened me. I thought, oh, my gosh, my children, I'm close to them, and this can happen in one day, and I was deemed evil. Kids kids don't miss anything, and of course, obviously, seeing their mother sitting on the floor, I mean, they were there in church, right? Seeing you having to be forced mm -hmm. to sit on the floor and yes. treated with utter contempt and nobody wanting to talk to you, and then, of course, he's pouring poison in their ear yes. all the time. And so I, I just, I can't imagine it. So how did this first manifest? What, what kind of things did they do to you after that? Well, just treating me like I was less than, I, I think it was always that way. We were in our home. Father was the head, the leader, that 
that was just the way our home operated. And there was a habit I got into. I'm only doing this because your father demands it. I have to obey. And he'd be right there. And I just said, I'm only doing this. And that was my only voice. <laughs> that was the only thing I could say. And it made him angry. But it was my one thing I'd be saying to my children. I do not agree with this. Uh, one time <clears throat> there was an ice storm and we were visiting his family. Um, we had three young children. Um, we were in Van Richfield, Washington, where his family was for the holiday. And the state police said, absolutely nobody on the freeway it is just straight black ice. It's dangerous. There was nobody on the freeway except for us. My husband wanted to go visit his uncle in Portland, Oregon. So we got on the freeway. It was dangerous. And I didn't want to get in the car or put my kids in the car, but I was forced to. But that's just how life was every day, you know, <laughs> just like that every day. And then as my daughters became eight, nine, um, I realized, yeah, he, they'd tell him if somebody called me, you know, if somebody stopped by. Um, my my mail was read uh, for, from him. My outgoing mail was read. Sometimes he'd sign my name on outgoing mail. Uh, books he'd gathered, the Quiverful Movement, the Mary Cried books, any of his cult books, let Christmas letters were put out that I couldn't keep up with all his cults, but he'd, um, my name was put on him. But I don't know if you want to go back to the people of praise cult. I can share a little about the crimes um, that were committed against me and uh, well, I wanted to talk about your like your relationship with your kids because that's the most tragic okay. part of this whole thing. Because yes, it is. Uh, uh, and and a lot of your kids are grown now, and I just yeah. am wondering if you're in touch with any of them, or if you've spoken to them, or how how that relationship. It, I mean, it was destroyed, obviously, but has there yeah. been any re any rebuilding at all? Well, to get back to to basics, I was not deemed a human being in my home, and my children saw that, even though I was tender and a protective and tender nurturing mother with them and fun mother. I mean, even Senator Betsy close kids. And she even wrote me a letter saying my kids, even they they're sad when I pick them up, <laughs> they want to be with you because you play with them. You have time for them. Um, so I was a nurturing mother with my children. I did play with them. I um, loved being with them. They were my joy. And um, through the years in the community, the people praise community I had three, but I had um, actually 11 children, lost three children, miscarriages, DNCs, and then eight children, eight living children. At the time of the divorce, they were nursing infant, two 17-year-old twins, so all minors. And, um, and every day of my marriage, I was threatened he'd take my children. I'd get nothing. Um, yeah, you're welcome to go. <laughs> but And that just kept me there until I broke down in 93 after my home birth with no medical care on my seventh child, Hannah Rose. Um, I didn't do well at that birth. And my husband just went back to work. I hadn't had sleep. We had moved to a farm and homeschooling, no sleep, pregnancy, remodeling home, doing my husband's work in the middle of the night. He'd get sleep. So I'd answer his work phone calls from Hewlett Packard. So I was in bad condition by the time of my birth and hemorrhaged and was told to get up, get dinner. His father and wife and people were coming over to dinner that night. So get dinner on the table and wash out your bloody sheets. And then my children all had the flu. And uh, so within six months, I called my doctor secretly, Dr. Charles South. He was the one that helped me eventually get away. But I said, I believe I'm dying. He said, oh, you know, my name was Kathy then. He said, Kathy, you'll get through this. You'll get through this. And I told him I couldn't, wasn't allowed to see him. I, husband would say we don't have money. He had a quarter million dollar state at the time. <laughs> and he'd be given thousands of money dollars to other people, but he wouldn't allow me to see my doctor who could have helped me. So 
but I was suffering from severe postpartum depression, which is normal <laughs> from hemorrhaging, no sleep, large family work, um, no rest, no support and cults and abuse. So six months later, I thought I had the flu. I couldn't pick up my baby. And uh, I asked my daughters to come help me. And I thought, oh, I'm just weak. And it just tumbled from there. I thought I had the flu and it was just a tumbling of a incredible physical collapse to where within months I could barely speak. I couldn't bathe myself or dress myself. And then from that period on, my ex and all his cult leaders and friends would exercise me for demons regularly, tell me I was a witch, that I was cursed, I was a Jezebel spirit. I hadn't learned how to submit to them, to my husband, and my mother would call tell me I hadn't learned how to submit to her. So she would tell me, this is what God does to you. God's punishing you. And so that went on. And then my children picked up the same refrain. If you just confess your sins, mom, you could be our mother again. You'd be well, but you won't do it. And then Bill Hurd, the pastor Bill Hurd from Mosberg came in. He was trained by Bill Gothard Institute, the Bill Gothard Institute from Chicago, who many children have been raped in his institute. And I was dropped there in Chicago to be uh, reprogrammed. Um, so dropped there, and they told they told them to fix me, and I was forced to scrub toilets, and I was in that same condition, could barely move, could barely dress myself or speak, and I was exercised for demons from their staff every day, told I was a witch, forced to watch all of Bill Gothard's videos, followed by high school girls, and there was one day I thought, if I don't get out of here, there was, all of me was still here, who I'm am talking to you was there in 94 when I was in Chicago. And I just am thankful for my critical thinking brain that worked even when it wasn't working. And I thought, oh my gosh, I'm going to die here. Um, I couldn't call it brainwashing what they were doing or abuse at that time, but I just knew I needed to get away. I had no money. I had probably enough change to get a taxi ride to the airport. Uh, no driver's license on me. Oh, I may have had my, I don't think I had a driver's license. He took everything. He just dropped me off because he and his Baptist pastors thought that what I deserved. Break me. So I go to the airport. I get attacked. I, I get the girls that were following me. I finally was able to get out a door. They didn't see me. I got into a taxi and uh, got to the airport. And I told um, the airlines, I said, my ticket should probably be online. I don't have it on me. And at that time in 94, you could do that. Not now. Um, but I went back to Portland, Oregon, and I then went and stayed with my brother, who was extreme to exercise me for demons, but he didn't beat me. And I, I felt a little safer not being at Bill Gothard Institute. But my, a lot of the people praise cult leaders and members have gone to the basic um, Bill Gothard Institute. And I, I started going to them when I was 16 because a lot of my teachers and stu uh, students in high school would invite me and go to it. And I didn't know anything else. I was Lutheran at the time, but that was just being preached a lot, this umbrella protection, all this headship. So it just emerged into Catholicism, cults, my marriage. And uh, it was a very painful time during my collapse in 93 and 94, and I was repeatedly beaten. I was raped. I was pregnant twice during this breakdown, which is against the law in all 50 states since 1993. If you're mentally incapacitated, helpless, um, if a man rapes you, that is rape, no matter if it's a husband 
wherever it is. And um, in 99, I did file rape charges in two different counties and both district attorneys thought of it as nothing and just dismissed it and said they didn't believe a jury would, you know, have a uh, convict a husband of rape. But I write about it extensively in my book. And I write in my book that the worst place to go to is a church, Catholic, Christian, any patriarchal institution. If you have been raped, suffered uh, domestic violence or child abuse molestation, they will blame you. They will shame you. And there is thousands of articles on this, many books and all mm-hmm. All yeah. experts say this, that that's the last, don't even go there. And I've received thousands of letters at my personal Facebook page, Bonshia, Making Light of the Dark from Women every day, and 100% of them have been abused or further victimized by the church, Catholic and Christian. So that is my message to the end of this day. And if people don't want to believe me, I have 20 years um, of letters and communication in person. Um, and this, I, I, I'm just afraid my children operate Christian ministries, um, and they have supported my husband and helped him further harm me in court and personally. They were nursing infant to 17 at the time I left 25 years ago. They're 25 to nearly 41 now, and they have even gone to court with him. They even read a hate letter to me, and you asked me about my children for nearly 20 years. I was their mother. I even did visitation every other weekend or whenever my ex and his mother would allow me to. Um, And I was sexually assaulted on his property. I was abused. I was verbally abused, emotionally abused. I'd sometimes take a tape recorder and just punch it and say the tape's on and it would stop it for a few minutes. But uh, I, after two years, thought I have no different life than when I lived with them. And when I would see my young children, they'd scream and cry when I'd have to drop them off. They'd tell me and my friends the abuse they were suffering. My friends wrote their phone number in their shoes. I realized I couldn't protect my children. The judges and my attorneys had told me I couldn't speak about my husband's abuse. Um, and so we live in this patriarchal society that just uh, diminishes women, diminishes us protective mothers. And nearly a million mothers, and I will just honor them this moment, have lost their children through family court all around the world, but in America. And we are very concerned about the mothers losing their babies at the border, and we should be, but they don't care about us. And Senator Jeff Merkley, I met with him in 2014, gave him a copy of my book. His assistant, who had been a battered uh, divorce attorney for battered mother, Joel Corcoran, had contacted me, had read my website articles and said, you need to write a document for Senator Merkley. Tell them about your 20 years of court abuse. And I did. I spent a whole summer that I met with Senator Merkley at his office in D.C. I had I had no car, so I had to get there by lots of different means. It was hard. I went there and met with him, gave my book, gave the document, never heard from him. But in 2019, he was the first man at the border for those mothers of lost children and continues to write about them to this day and has not a word for me, not a word. Not, no help. And, I, and my case is documented as one of Oregon's most horrific uh, domestic violence and rape cases in Oregon history. He knows that. His staff knows that. There's no help. And they just, it's like business as usual. I've been in, I've been in 50 court cases. It would involve uh, challenging the entire power structure. And if you are a product of that power structure, it's like, that's not that's not how it's going to work. <laughs> I, I don't. I don't know if there's 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 not an off ramp. I mean, it, we we talked about this earlier, but you know, Trump was just acquitted again in the Senate yes. today, yes. and uh, uh, they they couldn't they couldn't manage to hold him accountable for that. So they're all predators. This the goes ones. from top to bottom 
Yes. And you did ask me about my children. Of course, um, when they were taken from me, the judge in court, um, I did seek safety. I got well, finally, after my collapse in 93. I was impregnated well during that collapse, which is rape. But five months along in January of 1995, I woke up kind of like that Diana Ross movie, Out of the Darkness. And she had suffered a breakdown, but 18 years after a breakdown and living in a mental hospital after she collapsed in med school, she woke up and went back and got her doctorate degree. It happens to people. It happens to military personnel, lawyers, doctors, all kinds of people. But I woke up five months along and I realized, oh my gosh, I've almost lost two years of my life. I've been exercised for demons. I've lived in Portland, Oregon in a halfway house with ex-cons, rats and lice. I've been harmed greatly to get away and get safe. And that's very difficult in those kind of situations. You have no friends, you have no people. If you come from abusive family, no family. But I did get well and I stayed in the home of a year before my divorce and was teaching my children and um, being in the home every day. I was well, other than I knew I'd be dead soon. And my doctor, Dr. Charles Self, said that to me. He said, you know, he, he told me to get safe. He, called, yeah. he said, you go get the best. And he used some words I can't say. Attorney, you can find and divorce the words I can't say, your husband. Um, and I then sought on a path to calling friends from my past uh, people I knew when I was a court reporter in Longview, uh, adopted mother, Addie Archer, so I could go see attorneys in secret during the day with my nursing baby, have people helping and knowing what I was doing. And um, when I finally did it, uh, of course, there's no help in the court systems. Of course, the judges overturned my restraining order. Of course, all the churches and pastors and church uh, congregations supported my husband and helped him take my children from me. All those things happened, um, but people did come out of the woodwork. Women, my husband, who had abused in the workplace, helped hide my van at night with their husbands. People put me in motels under other names because the Polk County sheriffs were after me because my husband and his attorneys wanted them to. I, I did escape with my three young children after the restrain, restraining order was overturned. I was put back in the home with my predator husband and, and his mother and my adult daughters and uh, his church members, everybody watching me. And so I got a lock on my bedroom door and a different phone line. And I knew I couldn't live like that for seven months. So I did escape and I do believe the judge punished me for it, but he did put me in hiding. He agreed for me to live in hiding because neighbors and friends and doctors testified for me. But in court in 1996 in March, we had a five day hearing and he said, I've already decided to leave uh, I was Kathy then, Mrs. Warner, her young three children with her, her young children. Um, I have six doctor reports. She's taken six psychological tests by some of the top psychiatrists and doctors, psychologists in Oregon, many of them who had seen me just once during the time of my collapse, but never saw me again because my husband would not let me see a doctor alone. But they were just, yeah. I was still alive. But I lost, um, yeah, I lost custody of my children, even a judge telling me he was leaving the children with me. But the whole case was about my uh, postpartum depression. And I said, well, that was two years ago. Um, they laughed about my rapes. They laughed about my breakdown. They laughed about the rapes of me as a child. That became part of testimony. So any woman who is going to go to court, be forewarned, It'll be a witch trial, and they used to just burn us uh, centuries ago, and now 
you just go to through family court forever. And many of us, we end up living out of our car, which I did for three years. We're sued. We're legally stopped for the rest of our life. And we don't really have a life, but we're alive. <laughs> well, I want to read an excerpt from your book uh, about this family separation, when the, yes. the, the final point when you lost uh, your youngest baby. Okay. And yes. you, you write here. Um, I had a picture of my youngest baby, Zachary David Warren. He was a nursing baby when he was taken from me at six months old. So you said on, on March 10th, 1996, I was forced by an order of the court and by my ex-husband, his attorney, his family, and religious supporters to do something that raged against my good conscience, my common sense, and against all my motherly instincts. After a temporary custody hearing, a court order signed by Judge Norblad forcibly removed my nursing baby and two youngest children from me. I obeyed the court order and gave my children over to my ex-husband. I drove to the hospital, rented a breast pump, and later collapsed and went into shock. I could not understand what had happened and why I have not yet recovered from the shock. Perhaps I never will. So uh, this is just, this is horrifying to me. And I mean, we, uh, I was going to, I was going to talk about uh, Christoph's and my uh, cult story on this episode, but what, what we went through is just, just pales. I mean, it was nothing, you know, nothing our, like our cult was led by, um, by my mother who, you know, because she was a woman, there, this this kind of stuff did not go on in our cult, and so you know, I I again, I've known how how severe things could get in Christian communities because I've I've talked to other people who've had some experiences, not to the extent of yours, but it just, if anything, reading your story made made me feel how lucky uh, we were to, to grow up where we were in a relatively comparatively sane environment compared to what 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 you went through so just i mean i know that it's you've said so much and um i don't know if, how much more there is to say but what was that like losing your infant well i prepared myself for it the judge that um, they did judge shopping uh finally the seventh judge was judge alvin norblad and his father had been a governor he had been a judge for many years but he was known as the hanging judge he was horrific uh, to youth uh, sent him to McLean, which was in a very abusive youth center. And he Excuse was, me, pardon me, pardon me. I don't want to, but what was, yes. I, I, I want to hear about your experience yes. when this happened and, and this, yes. you know, it, I, I, I know the court system was horribly unfair, but this is your child that you're, oh. you know, well, having. like I say, um, because of the cults and because I live in a patriarchal society, I prepared myself for this. This is what they threatened through the whole family court proceedings. And, uh, I got a call. I was with my brother. We were at his cabin in Oregon, and uh, I was with my three younger children, and we went to a phone booth because my uh, my attorney wanted me to call him. It was 10 days after the last court hearing, and my brother then came with the news that there had been a judgment from the judge stating he had taken all eight children from me, even though he had put me in hiding, agreed to me to be in hiding for months with my children due to danger, knew about all abuse, that my husband had done to myself and my children. He had laughed with my husband about my rapes. So it, it was a really cruel court proceedings and all. But then finally, when I was told, I just went screaming through the woods. I There was a howl that came out of my body that I'd never heard before. And it's come out of my body since then when I'm just overwhelmed with grief and horror. It's a soul murder, again, of my being 
and there was nothing wrong with me. I was nursing my baby, protecting my children. And I passed all these psychological tests, which even those in court and the attorney said we couldn't even pass most of these either. And uh, I just was in shock. And then I knew, well, if I try to run, I'll just be arrested, put in prison. Uh, there's no choice. I just got to obey. So I obeyed and in shock, went and got the breast pump and then was at a friend's house that night. And uh, a woman, uh, two women slept in front of the doorway at this house because I was on a breast pump. It wasn't working. I kept getting up saying, I need to go get Zachary. I, I need to go get my baby. And uh, they just kept telling me to go back to bed. And I was in shock for several weeks and did see a doctor, a therapist who eventually um, violated HIPAA laws and was abusive. But the courts ordered me because they knew I, they'd probably put me in shock to see a doctor that wasn't very consoling. He didn't, he wasn't very uh, uh, educated about domestic violence. And um, so it was just me. And I just went and started looking for jobs because I, I couldn't live. I had no money. And so I was just expected to go get a job and uh, went and hadn't worked for 20 years, even though I had a background in court reporting, pilot training. Um, I got a hostess job, my first job. I think I was paid five fifty an hour. And then I got a job at a warehouse uh, lifting and loading trucks and loading trucks at Target and worked 80-hour work weeks, saw my children once a week uh, when they allowed me to. Most of the time, he and his mother wouldn't allow me to. I had phone court order for phone contact once a week, but my mother-in-law, Helen Warner, who helped take my children from me, who lied on the stand, told me the judge I had dropped a suicide note once when I was picking up my clothing. Um, she had always hated me and the children had been raped under her care and my own children got raped under her care when I was ill. So she uh, was instrumental. The church was instrumental in taking my children, but uh, went yeah. and did all I was supposed to do. And it wasn't easy and continued having to go to court. And every step I took uh, was very Hard. My children would talk about abuse when I'd see them and I'd get harmed when I'd pick them up. So two years later, uh, in 98, I decided, no, I need to get far away from them. And my mentors yeah. told me this, that my children were being harmed because they loved me. Well, this is when we talk about radical secularism, you know, th this kind of vile conduct where the 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 church is literally cooperating and taking a nursing yes. baby away from its mother's breast. Yes, this is what we're talking about. I mean, you know, even though th these things are these things are crimes, crimes are committed against you. Crimes are committed against your children. Your children were were, were forced to become complicit in crimes as they as they grew older. Um it, you know, it's meaningless to have those laws if the state grants some kind of de facto religious exemption for churches and cults. And I, I also want to talk about this from a standpoint of hierarchy, okay? Because here you are, right? As long as you stay within the patriarchy, you're you're able to be in, you know, your husband's beautiful home that he has and have your eight children and the picture-perfect life. But as soon as you disobey, now you're cast into warehouse job, hostessing, working 80 hours a week, living in your car, right? So th this this idea, they, they almost consider being poor to be punishment, just punishment. It is. Which is it why is. You, you're never going to get um, laws in a, in, in a country that is that is hardcore Christian like this. They're never going to, to, to really help the poor. No. And my children are glad that I'm being harmed. In fact, they, you asked me about my children now. We were close. 
when they were younger, um, I was close to my children as much as you can be uh, in that kind of environment, but I enjoyed them. They brought me joy and I did everything I could within that environment. I even put my body in between theirs to protect them from their brutal father. I did that time and time again. My older daughters were treated more as surrogate wives as far as reporting on me. He'd get them diamonds. He'd give them a car. He'd give them you know, $75 to go get their hair done where I wasn't allowed any money, no haircuts, no... Uh, couldn't talk to a friend, couldn't see my family. Even in the cult, people praise cult. My father died, was dying. Um, he was in emergency care one night and I was not allowed to go see him in ICU the night he died when I was in the community cult. And I was thankful they let me go to his funeral. Um, some of the community cult people, people praise cult people came to my father's funeral, but they didn't look at me because they were shunning me, but they were there for my husband who was still trying to stay in the cult. So it's been a bizarre life, but patriarchy, I tell people, there's a lot of women in the Mothers of Lost Children. There's a lot of women that we've all written, a lot of us have written books. Um, I do want to mention one of my friends. She also agrees with all of us about patriarchy, and she wrote Nothing But My Voice, uh, Donna Bosio. Mm-hmm. Uh, Nothing But My Voice, but we both talk about that. That's all we have left is our voice, and we will write, and we will speak, and we will meet with senators, representatives, but she also was harmed in the same way. And we both agree that patriarchy were not a part of a lot of the mothers of lost children causes, because many of those women are fundamental Christians who are also racist, who are also um, bigoted or anti-rights against other human beings, or they're against the ERA. I cannot work with women like that. I can't. I, I patriarchy. Until patriarchy has changed, there will be no change. It's just all a joke. As long as patriarchy, until patriarchy is upended, this is what it'll be for women. And a lot of women have written me from Oregon, and I've told this to Senator Jeff Merkley and even his assistant this year, Jessica. I said, I get letters from women in Oregon who are battered, who have been victims. And they write me and said, I've read your book. I've read your story. I'm going to stay in this violent relationship because I do not want to end up like you, Coral. Oh, my God. That's just it's it's terrible. And it seems like the, the, all these organizations that they have for children are just so they can get new converts. That's the only thing they care about children is just mm-hmm. to, to have more. It's the quiverful idea. Mm-hmm. It is. It for is. sure. Yes. Um, but we'll, we're, we're really coming to the end of our time, but I want, I wanted to talk about your last year you were going to testify or you wanted to testify yes. at the Senate confirmation hearing for Amy Coney Barrett. And of course, they should have heard from you because now all of America has been saddled with this judge for life, right? Um, yes. What were you going to say? What what were you what would you have said if you had the chance to testify? Yes, and I will mention to your viewers that they can go to my website of coralanacatil.com and the first link, and also at my blog there's a there's this five page letter to all the U.S. senators and the Judiciary Committee that I wrote and sent to on October eighth. And they received it. I have an email that they received it, that they wouldn't um, allow me to testify. Senator uh, Lindsey Graham made it very clear that nobody was going to testify. And Senator um, Sass and Senator Ernst, uh, they all talked about this person in the news, which was me, a couple others. But I was interviewed. I had 20 interviews. I was in the AP, Guardian, Political Newsweek, Reuters, uh, Paris, France, two, two interviews from Paris, France. So it was all over the news from September to October and people were writing me and, and write, reading my book. And then there's even reviews at Amazon of people saying, I found this book by Googling, you know, 
Supreme Court Justice Amy Cody Barrett, and I am alarmed. And because there's so much documentation in the book, and I have witnesses, I told the senators, there are witnesses ready to testify. Even Dr. Paul uh, Hesburgh, Sr., he lives in Washington State, he witnessed the crimes and abuse. But mm-hmm. um, you want me to read a few of Well, the- you, you could just give us the highlights, because we, we'll put the link in the show notes and anybody can go read sure. the whole letter. But I just thought, you know, if there was just some high points or low points, as the case may be. Mm-hmm. Well, I, I just shared that I would like to testify at the confirmation hearing of Judge Amy Coney Barrett as to the oppression, abuse, and crimes that I and other women were victims of in the People Praise sect, to which Amy belongs. Although men have ultimate authority in the sect, women leaders like Amy are complicit in subordination and mistreatment of lower status women like me. And the entire time I was there, I was under the control of men and subjected to psychological abuse, including undue influence threats, shaming, and shunning by leaders and my husband. Coercive persuasion was used on my children to turn them against me. My husband and the community leaders used coercive control, isolation, intimidation to strip me of my personhood, safety, and freedoms guaranteed to me as a United States citizen. They also launched a smear campaign when I finally got courage to leave. The actual crimes committed against me were marital rape, false imprisonment, kidnapping, and illegal interrogation. No, these were crimes at the time. I believe these crimes are still occurring in people praise communities and need to be investigated. And I was told I had to obey my husband, who was my head. I was required to be a helpmeet, which is the biblical term for a wife's duty to help her husband do whatever he wants, whenever he wants. This was the main reason my husband wanted to join the group. Um, I was forbidden to take birth control and was even accompanied to my husband to my OBGYN appointments. I was required to submit to my husband's demands for sex at any time, even immediately after birth. My husband could rape me at will, and that was fine with the leadership. The most serious crimes committed against me while in the people of praise were continual um, marital rapes. Um, Each week, I was forced to endure headship meetings with my husband who would correct me and the children, he would remind me that I was to set an example for the children by obeying him in all things. And this was a direct correlation to how they would respond and obey him. My husband reported to leaders in his own headship meeting, any comments I had made that questioned his absolute authority. He kept a black book and listed each and all of my infractions. Um, I was required to tell my innermost thoughts to the leaders and emotions to women leaders called a handmaid who reported what I said to the male leaders and who then reported them to my husband, who could then correct me at our headship meeting. Um, One example of oppression I endured is that after my second miscarriage and DNC surgery in the spring of 1984, I was required to attend the mandatory People Praise Women's Meeting. I was still bleeding heavily and was weak from surgery. The women wished to go shopping on a shopping excursion that evening. I share shared with them that I would be unable to go shopping with them and walked out of the meeting. The handmaid of the women's group, Connie Hackenbrook, immediately called my husband and reported my disobedience. My husband called another member, Bruce Burning, to watch our three children. As soon as I arrived home, I was forced into a car and driven to the home of Ed Brown, my husband's head. He told me that some people like me couldn't cut the mustard in the narrow walk with Jesus Christ. I told him I was tired and wanted to go home, but it was only after several more hours of interrogation until the wee hours of the morning, I was finally allowed to leave. Um, Because I was brought and kept at Ed Brown's house against my will, and he used insults and threats during the interrogation, I believe this fits the crimes of kidnapping and illegal interrogation. 
The next day, the members of community were instructed to shun me, not to speak to me. I was considered poisonous and a danger to the community and well-being, but still forced to attend meetings and women's retreats. Shunning is a cruel and humane practice within many church groups and cults, a form of silent ridicule. My crime, I was disobedient to the leaders. Wow. I'll go and list the many crimes um, that were committed. Well. And I said, I believe crimes and the abuse against women are being committed systematically and methodically by the people of praise under the cover of religion. By but this is not about religion. It is about power men are given to keep women under their control. I have witnesses who can cooperate my abuse and no former members who can give written testimony and perhaps in person as to the abuse and subjugation of women in the people precept. Confirmation hearing should include this testimony. I would very much like to testify to the Senate in person as I believe the public should hear firsthand about Amy Coney Barrett's support of patriarchy patriarchal ideology and resulting oppression of women. This should be a disqualifier for the highest court in the land, respectfully. Anyway, I recommend everybody read it and I'm going to be republishing my memoir this spring and including this along with other uh, documents about the cult. Wow, Coral. Uh Thank you so much for being with us Thank on the you. Radical Secular. You are tough as nails. I so wish that you'd been able to get up there and um, and testify. Oh. You're just an inspiration to all women. I'll keep speaking. And, and also, I hope my children find this video someday. I, I hear I have 10 grandchildren or more. But like you asked me about them, they've written me hate letters in the past, told me I'm a tool of Satan, and he'll throw me away like a dirty dish rag. And these are children in the Christian church running Christian ministries, Baseball Northwest in Oregon. And they go to many of the court hearings I've been subjected to uh, supporting my abusive husband and supporting him suing me to into more poverty. So I hope they find this and I hope um, someday they um, get counseling outside of patriarchy and uh, our secrets. <laughs> I hope so too. I mean, it seems to me like what I would hope, what I would most wish for you is some, is that some of your children could see the light and you could have a relationship with them, at least some, or maybe even your grandchildren, right? That is correct. I, I don't know. You never know what will happen next. Or um, I know I've met a lot of people in Oregon that knew them. Um, I get letters from people that knew them as of recently, as of last month. And they walked away from this extreme fundamental Christianity and are concerned for my children. But it's been a sad journey. Um, but I have used my journey to write many articles for the Marines and the Wounded Warriors. And I do advocate work for trauma survivors and Wounded Warriors. I've written for Leatherneck Magazine on racism and um, PTSD, TBI, suicide prevention. And I now serve on the board of directors of the Montford Point Marines of America Incorporated. And um, I just continue to hope to be a light and to be a voice. And I hope to talk with you all again. Thank you so much, Cora. You are, you really, like I said, you really are an inspiration. I mean, I, it is, it is, it, I, I, if I needed any more reason to keep fighting and and supporting strong women like you and uh, and fighting patriarchy uh, th th this is a, truly an inspiration thank you so much for being with us thank you thank you for doing this
Christoph. Wow. That was a tough subject. And I'm just frankly, super angry that this nightmare is probably still being repeated for thousands or perhaps hundreds of thousands of American women living in religious cults and abusive relationships justified by their religions. I know you have thoughts. <laughs> I sure do, Sean. I sure do. That was a really powerful interview. A, a couple things come to mind is, first of all, just the strength of that woman, um, the strength of the human spirit, but particularly this woman. This woman is she is lovely, just lovely and warm and and beautiful and thoughtful and smart and 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 uh, she's an author and all these and and she talks about these unbelievably difficult sort of ideas and problems and patriarchy with uh, with with a with a combination of compassion but also uh, uh, but not detached right it wasn't it's not like clinical but it's like it's personal but it's also um, very uh, you know, loving and open. So anyway, great conversation. Um, I am fucking infuriated. I'll tell you what, like, I mean, that's the second part, right? The first part is like, oh my God, this woman's outstanding. What an amazing woman. The other side of this is like, I couldn't be more committed to what we're doing here and what, why, why we get up and fucking do this all the time. This is exactly the story, right? And all of the, of the societal structures that, that, allow this to happen, right? Because it, most people aren't in those kind of cults, but there is an entire society structure that allows this to happen and gives it a fucking pass. And that's what's infuriating. That's what radical secularism is all about, is getting, is dismantling that kind of cover that these, that these organizations get. Absolutely. I mean, this is a part of the American civil war, which is still going on. I mean, we, we see that the same hierarchical structures that allowed slavery are still going on. I mean, there's modern, there's modern slavery in, in, in for private, private for-profit prisons, and there's slavery within homes yep. for women. Right. And it's just like, and, and that's not even, that's not even all of it. Like we could just go on and on with the reforms that are needed. And all of it has to do with justice, make mm -hmm. bringing justice into these situations that are hidden and that are, that are denied and just bringing them to light, bringing accountability and justice, which is going to make the people who are perpetrators scream and howl, and they're going to call it cancel culture. And they're, you know, they're, they're just, they are experts at this. Okay. They, they are literal experts holding women hostage through their own children. I just, it, unspeakable, Sean, it's unspeakable. And people, people talk about, say stuff to you people like you and people like me oh take take it easy why oh why relax, oh, relax. everybody relax but this is why <laughs> you don't fucking relax this is why we don't fucking relax man because our no. eyes are open we see what's happening here we're and we're and we refuse to turn away we refuse to turn away and this woman refuses to turn away as well she refuses to turn away and this woman has found her voice and it's just i'm just so i am honored that we were able to 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 help her and 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 support her in her journey. Yeah. Well, no unity with racists, no unity with sexists, no unity with rapists, no unity with homophobes, no unity with transphobes, no fucking justice, no fucking peace. Exactly. All right. Well, if you like our show, make sure to subscribe, leave a review, check out the radicalsecular.com, tell your friends to listen. New episodes post Mondays at noon Eastern on YouTube and at all the major podcast channels. And if you're into reading, check out the blog at theradicalsecular.com. 
I'm Sean Prophet. Thank you for being here. And remember, wherever you are, you can be radically secular. You've been listening to the Radical Secular Podcast, dedicated to the separation of church and state and the pursuit of justice. For full video episodes, please subscribe to our YouTube channel.